Broadcasting live from the road, this is The Monstrous Feminine, a podcast where horrible humans talk about horror. My name is Zeba, and I'm joined by my star-crossed lovers, Louisa and Taya. And this is our last episode covering horror cannibalism. Mila is off sick this episode, but she'll be back next time. We're talking about the 2022 coming-of-age romantic road film, Bones and All, directed by Luca Guadagnino. If you would like to hear one more bonus episode on this theme, then head over to our Patreon and pledge. Before we get into the film, go ahead and follow us on Spotify, YouTube, or the Apple Podcast app. You can find all of our links on our Instagram at the Monstrous Feminine Podcast. In Bones at All, Mare, newly 18, is left to fend for herself after her single father gives up trying to protect her from her own uncontrollable cannibalistic impulses. Marin sets out to find her mother, who abandoned her when she was young, and along the way, she meets an older man named Sully, a fellow eater who claims to have been able to smell the cannibalist quality on her. The two consume an elderly woman together, but eventually Marin leaves Sully. Marin happens upon Lee and eater around her own age, and they embark on a road trip across America. The two bond over their shared craving and dark past, and it quickly blossoms into a strange romantic relationship. You never had anyone take an interest in you? A double, double, a double, a double take? <laughs> just always thought. You just thought some people are creepy. It's better if we all steer clear of one another. We're dangerous to non-eaters, but we can hurt one another just as bad. I wanted to know what is the strangest food craving that you guys have ever had? Ice. Are you mineral deficient, Taya? That's probably why. I take iron now and I don't crave ice anymore. We're all deficient in something these days. That's so true. I take that D. <laughs> Sorry. Save a please. <laughs> it's winter time. I've been on the island for no sun for like too many years. Well, after over a decade, A, I've changed race, and B, I am definitely vitamin D deficient. I posed the question so I wouldn't have to answer it, and the answer is no. Except I recently found out that apparently, now this might be wrong, but apparently like cheese forms like a chemical in your stomach that's like as addictive as like drugs i believe that and you know what when i was in y'all's country the land with no sun i ate a lot of cheese because your food kind of sucks out there and if i don't have access to my delicious ethnic foods then i would eat a lot of like cheese toast i would eat so much fucking cheese because y'all have good cheese i'll give you that and i had such cheese cravings i've been addicted to cheese like since a child age when I was fussy eater, so they'll put some cheese on it and I'll eat it. I could have cheese, honestly, with anything. Have you ever had a nice sharp cheddar cheese with apple pie? No. Oh my gosh, so good. I would highly recommend. Try it out. My dad, he swears by um, baguettes with just like Cadbury's chocolate or just like chocolate and a baguette. When I took French when I was a little in elementary school, they're like, this is what French children eat. And that image has stuck in my mind, a chocolate bar sandwich. The Monstrous Feminine is on Apple Podcasts, so please go leave us a five-star review and a little message. If you do engage with our content, you might just get a shout-out in our next episode as our Witch of the Week. This episode, our Witch of the Week is Iswa from the UK, who left us a five-star review and said, I love this podcast so much. You guys are great, and I love listening to you when I'm working to make the day go a bit faster. 
I actually can't watch horror films because I'm a bit too much of a baby, so it's great to hear about them and your take on them instead. Insightful and fab. Definitely worth a listen, X. Amazing that you don't even watch horror films and you listen to this podcast. That's great. We should give uh, more thorough summaries then because we just be diving right into things. But maybe they don't want to hear like all the nitty gritty and that's why they appreciate like just our hee-hees and ha-has because it's uh-huh. only the good parts uh-huh. and they can skip. We aren't describing in detail all the stuff that they don't want to see or hear about. Well, anyway, I hope you have a brilliant end of the year and a happy start of 2023. Hope that you'll continue listening to us in the new year that we can continue being your horror positive friends or horror parents okay (laughs) are we not sophisticated enough for parents peers siblings yeah siblings friendly reminder that we are also on patreon for one pound a month you gain access to our discord for three pounds a month you get to hear a cut discussion from our main episodes and for five pounds a month you get all that plus a bonus episode Please support us. Any contribution helps. So my film friend, my friend who works in film, shout out Courtney, took me to this Q&A screening and it was cool. It was a Q&A with Luca Guadagnino, the writer David Kunjanik and Timothy Chalamet and Taylor Russell. And David Kunjanik on this Q&A mentioned that there are like YA elements to this story because it was originally adapted from a novel of the same name by Camille DeAngelis. And I thought that was an interesting point. I was like, ooh, hmm, YA. I hadn't really considered that in this like genre. And then Taylor Russell, again, when kind of answering questions about the film, she said that she used the isolation that she felt like while growing up herself as a way to access her character. And I kind of thought, yeah, I guess that's why this film does work as a kind of coming of age story really well. And I just wondered what you guys thought of it. Do you think it was like kind of relatable if you adapt it to your personal circumstances? Not really. And I can see like the coming of age in it because there is like the time that Marin like takes to herself when she and Lee separate for a bit and he goes to Kentucky and she's just like doing her own thing for a bit where she realizes that she does want to continue dating and going through life with him. So I think like that part is definitely a good part of coming into age because I do think it is sometimes important to process like overwhelming or traumatic information yourself instead of like having someone process it for you or like completely emotionally depending on someone. So I thought that part was very mature. But like in my personal experience, I wouldn't say it was necessarily relatable. (laughs) I think her character is like isolated because of the fact that she can't control her impulses. But I don't feel like the character was isolated in the sense that everyone thought she was a freak because she was invited to the sleepover and it was indicated that she went to summer camp and like people wanted to be friends with her, but her dad couldn't allow her to do those things because he didn't want to be burying bodies all the time. So it was more like a a forced isolation than something that was imposed because of the people around her, like not accepting her. And also it would be very hard to accept someone who might kill you anyway. I found this incredibly relatable. Saw this article and read the headline before I walked into the movie and I liked it to read for later and then I retweeted it when I walked out to make sure I agreed with it. But this was an article in the Daily Beast by 
Coleman Spildy, I'm going to say. And it was basically, it says, Bones and All perfectly captures the Midwest romantic horrors. And I was, you know, I'm always talking about horror movies. A lot of them that we watch are set in the Midwest. And every single time I'm like, this reminded me of where I grew up. I say this all the fucking time. And the Midwest is the site of so much horror. And it is for a reason. And when I finished reading that article, like literally outside of the theater, as I was like waiting for my Uber home, I was like, yeah, this this is it. And it's not the isolation of like, no one wants to hang out with you or like being the only person of color in your school, all of which was true. And I related to sort of like watching those scenes, the isolation of growing up in that part of the country where it's just so like vast, like you could literally walk onto the highway exactly like she's doing. It's a little different in the eighties and just keep walking and just like lose yourself. Like you could hop on a bus and go four hours and be like completely unfindable to everybody you know and everybody who knows you. Like I used to do the bus trip from Minneapolis to Des Moines, Iowa pretty frequently because my parents lived in Iowa and I lived in Minnesota. And I used to do that like back and forth. Um, Also like through Ohio, Pennsylvania, Rust Belt, like we were a big road trip family. So I've like been through all those like quote unquote like flyover states, like the places that nobody goes to as a tourist. Like I think North Dakota is the least visited state in the United States I read recently. And that's surprising to me because like for folks in Minnesota, that's where we go to vacation to like the Badlands or the Prairies or like Mount Rushmore is out there. Like I was like, what? People go there, but people really don't go there like compared to, you know, the coasts or even the South. Like it's not an isolation or a loneliness that's necessarily like depressing or or like oppressive. It just like is the nature of the place. And so I think that's why like the cinematography, there's something like quite romantic about the setting. It's because like it is very bleak and barren and like scary. It kind of is if you're not in a car, if you can't drive, if you're like walking for any reason, it's like dangerous. And all of that is true. And I still find, like, I consider myself to be a Midwesterner. It, like, that is my home to be, like, one of the most beautiful places I've ever been. And it's just, like, flat country. And also, it kind of, the scale of the United States, I don't think if you're from the United States and you've been to, like, the middle bits, you understand, like, how far apart fuck all everything is. Where did she start from? Michigan? I'm not sure because she went to Columbus. Yeah, and they were in Kentucky for a while. And when she said that she was going to Minnesota, and I also knew all those little Minnesota towns, you know, Mankato, they name drop a lot of places. Like besides Fargo, I haven't seen like a more accurate depiction of that part of the country in a movie. Small town kind of life. It's, it is romantic and terrifying at the same time. And I thought that like it was captured really well there. And I think I was also... 18 around that time sort of like traveling around that part of the country before I went to college on buses by myself big old backpack like waiting out in places and I was like yeah that is it that that's like for real and also I would have fallen for a little white boy like that there's not much better out there I'm telling you there's it is slim pickings well you just single-handedly convinced me not to go to the Midwest thank you so you're basically saying the on the road element of it is um, relatable. To be fair, it was a bit like into the wild, but for cannibals. The things that were horrific about like Sully, for example, situations like that, I suppose, felt relatable as well. Like the horror of like the like vastness and the aloneness of that situation and like 
interacting with strangers, the like sheer whiteness of that part of the country of being like a black or mixed race person, like in these little diners, in these weird towns where you don't know who, to, who you can trust and who you can't trust. That felt like a very accurate horror of that part of the country. Of course, it's worse because it's the 80s and we don't have cell phones and there wasn't like, they were very off the grid in that way. But if I were to leave my phone at a bus station, I'm not far from the position that she's in. On the time period thing really quick, I thought the time period was really like well done. And in that q and I mentioned Luca Guadagnino said something which I thought was a good way of putting it. He said he wanted this film to be set in the 80s, not about the 80s. And like too many period films kind of get that wrong, essentially. And I thought it was so subtle that stupid me barely even realized it was like an Eddie's film. Does that make sense? Like I only kind of you would know only from like their use of tapes and maps. And I didn't even realize it because actually when you do go that rural, you're right. If you left your phone, like not much has changed when you're in that remote America, which is kind of the point I was like thinking about of like, oh, that's why it's subtle to me because they're in rural America and it doesn't like rely on technology that much anyway. I thought this film was somewhat relatable and the friend that I saw this with laughed at me and said it was like a Louisa phrase to say this, but I thought this film queers cannibalism. Because I thought, okay, maybe it's it's a bit of a reach. Like, I understand that it's a heterosexual, like, romance. But I think in general, first of all, the thing that was immediately gay is the opening scene where she's at a sleepover and she's, like, smelling her and she, like, goes to, like, you know, suck her finger and obviously then bites it. Chomp, chomp. Like, all of that was so queer. Like, that whole portrayal. And the girl seemed like she was hitting on her. And I was like, God, I've been in these very homoerotic sleepover situations. No, she was getting mad close. She was, for sure, she was feeling sapphically. It was gay. That set the tone, I think, which aligned cannibalism with queerness right from the get-go. Because, like, it could have been a different situation. It could have been a boy at a party, you know? But they chose some sort of queer scene for that. I think the general like outsider status um, and the kind of runaway romance and like the shame that they feel for like their impulses is kind of aligned with the general queer experience. Queer monstrosity, I'll give it to you, but still queer. And there were quite a few reviews. For example, um, Sid Hunt Adlaka for IGN said, pointed out, and I'm not going to quote, but pointed out the kind of self-hatred element of it again like that kind of shame not that all queer people hate themselves of course but that kind of guilt and shame when you feel like what you're doing is wrong and then also they called sully like a kind of queer elder because he then kind of sits like um marin down and is like here's like here's he gives her the terminology he's like eater here's how you do it like he lays it out and i was like not entirely too far off and then christy Puchko from Mashable also pointed out like that Lee is presented as like quite sexually fluid like he actually has a kind of queer in in trying to like lure that gay male victim he has he instigates like a sexual scene with him like he, he didn't actually need to go that far he just had to get him alone you know and then also like he's called a gay slur for the way he dresses like I think by his like parent his dad or something Lee that is oh his sister okay again the general kind of repulsion for their impulses the fact that it, they're like in poverty or like on the road and kind of homeless is like reminiscent of like outcast or kicked out like queer youth this person was commenting on I thought they had quite a good summary so I'll read this bit out but Christy Puko again from Mashable said 
this is Luca Guadagnino, with his latest film, he embraces body horror to express homophobic self-loathing brutally fostered by society in Reagan-era America. By casting a modern it boy to reminisce about those who came before, he lures older audiences into a familiar rush of adolescent lust. By stacking his cast with dazzling young talent and established supporting players, Guadagnino brings a steady stream of intensity, whether a scene be about cannibalism or coupling up. They are our unflinching guides through this world of spit, snot, and blood, and through all this muck mayhem and murder the film uncovers a deep empathy for queer youth desperate to be understood and loved because charlotte o'sullivan as well for the evening standard said like when the central characters talk about feeding they sound strikingly like closeted queer people from another era furtively sharing their passion with that potent mixture of excitement and shame so all of that to say that I think it did feel some at times when I was watching it queer, even though that's such a strange thing to say because it is a heterosexual romantic film. And Ty, I feel like you're going to drag this to hell. I don't care. I don't care. I think it acts as a metaphor for queerness. I think it does. I'm not going to drag your point. I think there's a lot of different metaphors for the movie, but I think at first, like, I don't know, like a part of it just kind of unsettled me and I couldn't figure out why. And then I realized that it was like, I was seeing it from like Kayla's character's point of view and how she felt about Lee continuously like leaving and not knowing where he would stay and like if he was okay. And I realized that the film kind of feels like a metaphor for addiction. And there's also like the mention from the guy, I don't know if they gave him a name where he tells Lee, like, you remind me of every junkie I've ever met. And he's like, you're the person who needs saving in this. The way that like, Marin sees her mom and she's like, I don't want to be like her. I'm going to fight this. Like, and he says, there's only two lifestyles for people like us. Or And it's like, you end up like her in like a mental hospital or either you just take the cravings. And so like the way that it's like the hunger, like where they're just having like a normal day at the fair or whatever on a date. And she says like, I'm hungry. And then he goes off and ends up kind of like doing like sex work in exchange to have like a meal and so to me it kind of felt like it was a bit like a metaphor for addiction and then both of them were struggling with it they have like the period where they're clean and they're she's working at the university at the end and they're there's ultimately like the sad demise and he's like I want you to love me and eat me and it kind of just felt like a final hurrah I guess um to the fact that it was like so many relationships end in tragedy when there's an element of addiction in it and they are also addicted to each other and completely codependent and so like the ending to me felt like she consumes him and they're together like binded in a way that he's inside of her and so like the addiction is fed but it's like an addiction to love another person to a substance or like a feeling of wanting to be loved. Charlotte O'Sullivan for the Evening Standard again kind of said that there is no one simple allegory and they brought up the addiction thing as well because of the junkie comment as you mentioned and the fact that Lee compares his post-dinner self to a pumped up superhero Um, and the fact that they like they get this from their parents like if a parent has a uh, is addicted to drugs then their children are more likely to have a predisposition so I, I did actually think that that's a very valid take on it as well at the end when we find out that sully when he like comes to their house and he's saying they have unfinished business and 
is sexually assaulting her. Um, what did you guys like think of that scene? I found it so hard to watch. I was in, like I said, I was in the cinema and it also seemed to go on for so long again, maybe because it's a big screen and you can't look away when you're in a theater in the same way I can when I'm at home. Like there's like an obligation to watch it. I was like squirming in my seat. More than any of the cannibalism, I was like, this is the thing that makes me want to walk out. But I couldn't because I was sitting next to my friend. So I was like, uh-huh. I just wanted to talk about Sully as a character. Um, I think there's much to unpack there. First of all, this is another one of those. There's so many horror movies that came out this year where it, the lesson is like, don't trust men or men are bad or strangers are scary especially when they're men like there's I could I could list them I won't we know what they are we've talked about them on many episodes um I mean barbarian is another one that's very similar in messaging we should just do an episode theme like called men (laughs) we should do it just because I also want to talk to y'all about those movies and we haven't and I want y'all to watch them because I feel like Mila and I have both watched Men. Did you watch Men, Ty? Anyway, anyway, we'll talk about it when we talk about it. But for Sully's character, we see him at the bus station. That made me, made me incredibly uncomfortable. I know that, you know, often in horror movies, there's this bait and switch where we should trust the guy who we think we shouldn't trust. That also happens. But there are lots of moments in lots of these movies that came out in recent years where it's like, which men we can trust and not trust. And it's like the one who is creepy is actually the one you should trust or the one who looks safe is actually the one you shouldn't trust. Like there's lots of these weird bait and switch things. And in the end, the lesson we're supposed to learn is like, don't trust any man. So that Sully has this, okay, he seems to have information that would be useful to her. So it would be to her benefit to follow him. That is a very scary and real situation where people like get sex trafficked because somebody knows more about that or whatever, or somebody makes promises to you or has information that would be useful to you or money or shelter or food or whatever connections. That is very, very real horror. So that was in my mind. Then when they sort of present him as this, like they try and make him this like sweet kind of like even a bit endearing figure or like grandfatherly figure when he like promises he's like cooking chicken so we think he's gonna feed her some like whatever food that humans eat and then even when he is explaining how he's an eater and how he doesn't kill people he just waits until he smells somebody who's dying and he seems like okay a better version of this horrible monster that she could become or is or that other people are and even then replace implanted this seed of like half trust of like maybe later down the line we'll regret not trusting Sully like yes he is a creepy man but maybe we'll feel bad about this later and and then when she when she finds Lee my first thought was don't trust him I shouldn't trust anybody if you weren't going to trust Sully you shouldn't trust Lee either and then I was like the plot twist is going to be that we should have trusted Sully and not Lee and I'm going to be mad about that like I was making all these kinds of predictions for myself as the audience because that's the kind of predictions I make myself as a solo traveler right like who to talk to who to trust all of that kind of stuff then when Sully makes his big return and he becomes this sort of like pitiful you know why did you leave me I've been trying I've been following you to protect you which is also creepy again we're planted this seed of like fuck damn should she have trusted Sully or like or is she 
being mean to him in some way, right? But she's not, right? All she's denying him is companionship and she doesn't owe him companionship. And that's something we have to keep in mind, like as sad as he might be. And then when he turns on her and he's like calling her a cunt and everything, you're like, okay, well, fuck. Yes, we should not have trusted Sully. I feel good about that decision. I feel good that she walked away from him. And then he comes back and like, you know, further proves that point that like he was not to be trusted. Now, should she have gotten in the car with Lee? That's something that we can unpack too. Like, she, like, why would you trust somebody who's closer to your age or like gives off a quote unquote, like less creepy vibe? Like that was something to consider besides her grandmother and her mother and um, Lee's sister didn't really interact with very many women throughout, right? Like the, all the other eaters were men and that she was always this like young girl alone with men. And she looks so young. Like that is the thing that like makes me like the most uncomfortable is like, I almost thought she was lying the whole time. Like ain't no way she's 18. She looks like a runaway teen, like straight up. Like she looks very young. And I think that like, that she was allowed to get as far as she did is kind of remarkable. That's sort of a side note. I just wanted to know what y'all made of Sully's character because I, I found him to be like certainly the most horrific element of the whole movie. But Sully's character kind of reminds me of the killer from Silence of the Lambs. I think like his infatuation with her was partly because she was like a young woman, but also when he keeps saying like there's unfinished business and he wants company and he just wants a companion. At no point did I feel like he was sexually attracted to her. That's why the last scene really threw me off. I felt like it was like he almost wanted to be her, like with the naivety and like her beauty and her youth, like he wanted to be her. But also the fact that he has like the long braid of victims. And I feel like we're meant to interpret that as he only kills women. And then he has a long braid as well, which feels like he's kind of emulating his victims in a way that he wishes he was them. And I almost like wondered if like, because I felt like his braid changed once maybe it was just the lighting I was like is he putting like taking a braid off and then putting out his hair and then braiding it back into his rope and he was saying like how strong it was um when he's in the old lady's house and he's like kind of cosplaying as if it's his house and like taking on like a grandma role it just feels like he enjoys well are we meant to assume that he eats them bones and all and that he is absorbing i thought he was absorbing all his victims and that's why he speaks in third person it's because he's so fucking like gone now from having done that to so many people i think he does but he when he shared with her i think that was like he kind of felt like he had unfinished business with her because he felt like they shared some sort of like experience and so she was like a part of him now and so the separation was like traumatic and he felt like she needed to be there at all times versus she was like I was hungry I just want to I want to leave she said she says this thing that's like it's not about whether or not you're a good person it's that I don't trust you and I have to go with that that was like the most telling thing to me like that's the most logical thing you can say to somebody but like men are illogical and they take rejection how they take it and often become like violent. But like, that's all you can say is like, I'm not saying you're a bad person. I'm saying I can't trust anybody and I'm in a vulnerable position. And even when she points out like at the van, when they're at the, like it looked like a fruit stand or something. And he's trying to get her to get into the car. And she says like, why do you speak about yourself in third person? And he corrects and says like, well, I want to do X thing. And I was like, okay, like, He's, he's willing to like put on a persona to be more trustworthy and it feels like 
a feminine persona is what he feels like will like lure her in but also in a way where I feel like even when he was asking about her mom and he's like yeah like you just mentioned your dad and stuff I was like he takes in like a lot of information from people off of like bare bones information all she said was like yeah my dad told me like I could live on my own at 18 and he was like your mom's not in the picture and you're looking for your mother she probably abandoned you she possibly was an eater like the way that he was able to grasp information made me feel like he has like a way of breaking down people's trust barriers and making you feel safe and then with that become someone dangerous and also like him killing Kayla at the end I was like damn Lee's mom is really going through it <laughs> like neither of her kids are coming back that he had just been following them and had inferred that this was somebody special to them I think so but and she was at their their house like I guess Lee left and he ate her that quickly and there was nothing left but I do know like the only thing that kind of slightly ruined the movie for me which I understand they had to introduce the title concept but once they met the guy and he was like yeah there's bones and all and then there's after who also was Timothy Chalamet's dad and called me by your name anyway once they like have that conversation and he's like yeah have you ever eaten anyone bones and all and she's like that's impossible and I was like got it so she's gonna eat Lee bones and all <laughs> like immediately and when that happened I was like oh not me being right yeah that I kind of wished wouldn't have happened like I don't know the end scene was nice but also I hate to say this but because she was like topless and like laying on his back it reminded me of the bound to music video (laughs) (laughs) so my experience of it was like from the get-go I was like okay Sully's gonna come back and he's gonna be like the main villain so I didn't really have a debate of trust I was like but maybe I'm just naturally distrustful (laughs) did also think like why is she so quick to trust lee because it was timothy chalamet okay but he wasn't timothy chalamet he was just some scrawny boy in a cardigan like the part in the grocery store where he like chases that guy out or like you know does his big macho thing that was kind of goofy to me i laughed because i can't imagine anybody being like genuinely threatened by timothy chalamet but also he he reminds me so much of my friend's boyfriend who's also like a good boy from the midwest and he totally would do that and i'm like nah this is a genre of man from out there but also i think Marin was like confused that she saw him like be so sexual with a guy and he had like not made any moves on her <laughs> she was like I thought this in the was the theater else. when he pulled that boy into the corn. People literally gasped around me <laughs> when she was. I thought they were just going to be in the dude's car. So when she heard them moaning in the corn, so I was like, he had a car. And you know what, country boys make do. I don't know what they were doing with all those ears of corn, but I was proud of them. Stop it! That's stop, 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 stop it right now. Anyway, I was gonna say that. I kind of, yeah, I always knew that Sully was going to come back and be the main baddie. I thought it would be a case that Marin and Lee would consume Sully together as their first bones and all. And it would be like a losing your virginity situation, like for Marin anyway. Also, like, I just think that there was so much eroticism aligned with cannibalism and has been like that act of eating and consumption. Like we've talked about it in other episodes about how there is a kind of um, sensuality to that. And in this review by Clarice Lowry for The Independent, she said, Their romance is surprisingly chaste and pure, while it's their feeding that becomes laced with erotic desperation. Like Interview with a Vampire, the people devouring scenes have an element of sensuality to them. Characters shed their clothes or come out of kill scenes with hair tousled. They pant and they moan as they bite, claw, and dig into their victims. 
And I was like, okay, yeah, that's true. There is something like erotic about it. Like you, you even mentioned that they don't have a very sexual relationship. And that to me kind of is the sexy act of eating together. I feel like that because Sully and Marin did that together, that is why Sully felt like almost like they had sex. Like I hadn't actually like read like a kind of gender bending reading of Sully at all. I think that interpretation is really fascinating. But yeah, I was reading it more in the line of like a typical cis straight male thinking that he has ownership of her because they shared an erotic experience and now he feels like he has claim to her he like showed her like she first kind of did it with him I felt like it was almost like not virginity but like inexperienced least wanting to be consumed in the end was like he wanted to be with someone who like loved him forever because he felt like the love of his family even Kayla's was like kind of conditional to like if he stayed home if he did the things that they wanted him to do versus his relationship with Mira was based like solely off of being who he was even though he has like said several times like this is the way we are we don't have to change for anyone your dad's wrong he's like okay yeah like I'll do it for you like it does feel like he is a person who molds himself into what people want to be what is implied there that when they went back to normal they can eat regular food (laughs) it was like presented as like a supernatural ability right like even sully being like you can smell them can't you try harder and i was like what the fuck but also when they said she killed her babysitter at three years old i was like so she got super strength i don't think you're expecting a baby to attack you if a baby gets at you in the neck you're you're done for like they'll right like you can't get up I thought this film reminded me a lot of Raw, not not in the least because it's both, they're both about cannibalism, but also because of that the fact that this cannibalistic urge is an inherited condition, seemingly, on the maternal line. Like, it's her mother who had it. Wasn't it Lee's father who had it? Um, the only common denominator was it was, yeah. it was always a white person. That's what I noted. She happens to be mixed with it, but she got it from her white mama. <laughs> also yeah and they also she even says like she says something about being mixed at one point i'm pretty sure and also every other cannibal we see is pretty much just a white dude i think it came from white people that's my theory okay that's a white midwest community like the opioid crisis the fact the whole film is like searching for the mother does give it a kind of archaic mother presence like the absent mother and then when we get to the mother my friend pointed out that like it is quite ableist in its description and it was the one thing that we didn't really like about the film and the fact that it did seem like a kind of cheap moment to like have this mother who's like so horrific that she's she's eating her own arms and and like it, it was just kind of a cheap thrill or like a shock value moment but equally yeah it is that kind of all devouring mother like um the reabsorption and then the mother tries to like kill her and there's like shame and whatnot so it is very much giving barbara creed's archaic mother monstrous mother vibes why did she have a child if she knew that this was she said yeah she said like she again that's why i feel like it kind of like feels very similar to addiction because she's like i thought it would be fine and then your dad felt like i was just gonna be like a threat to you and him so i left and she was like and i didn't think you would be like me but you you being here lets me know that he didn't keep his promise and he let you know where i was and also that you're probably also like so she left before her daughter was like displaying any signs of being a cannibal okay it seems like the first time she did it was at when she was three and she was like long gone by then and then the way that he says, like, she gets really sneaky with it and she goes to summer camp and, like, kills the kid there and he didn't say anything or show any remorse. And he's like, 
yeah, like bodies were showing up and a kid went missing and I was waiting for you to say something you didn't. And so like, and then when she goes to sleep over and comes back like bloodied up and he's like, you didn't. And he has like the bags packed and everything. It just feels like, I mean, I don't blame him. Like at that point he was liable to go to prison for covering up bodies and stuff. He did as much as he could. And then he was like, you know what? You're 18 now. I can't do it anymore. I thought there was an interesting point in this interview with Luca Guadagnino uh, by Hannah Strong for Little White Lies. Basically, Hannah asked about the costume designer, um, Julia Piersanti. She asked, what was her vision for Marin and Lee's style? And Guadagnino answered, Julia had this idea that a lot of the clothing is random that they find in housing houses in places that they can roam. Marin, for instance, she wears this barber coat that belonged to her father and that he left behind when he abandoned her. It's a symbol of her hugging him, even if he left her. And then the more she falls in love with Lee, she peels layers of clothing off and she becomes more and more feminine. Then for Lee, Julia had this idea that Lee was one of the first grunge of the grunge generation as epitomized by the tragic figure of Kurt Cobain. He encompasses this impossibility and this desperation, the emotional fragility of that generation. And you see that in him. I was like, she dressed like me. I wear every weird denim skirt she has on. Who wears long denim skirt? But I, they did that for me. People who live in Brooklyn. I am people from Midwest. I am people who live in Brooklyn. I'm the Venn diagram for that wardrobe. <laughs> I liked his little cardigans too. I know people wore that in the 80s, but that was kind of giving um, 2022 Gen Z fodder. Like they, that little pearl necklace he had on. I'm like, okay, sure. Thank you for listening to The Monstrous Feminine. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, SoundCloud, and Spotify at The Monstrous Feminine Podcast and on Twitter at The Monfem Pod. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and follow us on TikTok at The Monstrous Feminine Pod for podcast clips and more fun. Brooms up, witches out. <laughs>